This podcast is not appropriate for children, and this episode is going to be especially difficult for listeners of any age. It includes allegations of sex abuse and difficult discussions about suicide. There's also some swearing. Lauren Alexander remembers feeling stoked. It was equine therapy day. She and the other girls at Integrity House would get to go outside and spend time with horses. We got our tennis shoes and our jackets on and we were lined up by the door. And I remember we were waiting in line for them to get the keys to get us into the vans. And there was like a knock on the door. And when the staff saw who was at the door that day in 2013, it was clear they wouldn't be bringing the girls to see the horses after all. They said, okay, well, the police are here. They, um, I guess they just want to look into a few things, and, but they do want to question all of you girls. Lauren didn't know exactly why the cops were there, but she could tell. It was serious. I mean, being a drug addict and stuff, like, I've seen raids happen. I've seen cops come in, but... Usually it's more like bang, 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 they run in, they're looking for drugs or whatever, and then toss the place up, and then they leave. But this one day, I remember, like, seeing, like, a mattress wrapped up in the, like, plastic stuff with evidence tape on it, and it was, like, leaned up against the wall, and that they were, like, taking sheets, and it went on all day. The investigators took the girls aside, one by one. Tracy Davis was the mental health counselor there, and she warned the girls to be careful what they said. I mean, those are the kind of girls you're going to question. Of course they're going to say bad things, you know? So you were convinced they were going to make stuff up when they— Oh, I know they were. They were trying—they'd leave in a heartbeat. You think about when you were that age and if you were sent to a treatment center, would you lie to get out of there? I would, too. You know, be honest, you guys, that's what they said. And then, like, once the door was shut and once we were all waiting to actually, like, talk to the cops, they were like, you know, just be careful about what you say. Cops take things the wrong way. And you don't want to accidentally say the wrong thing. Like, they were just trying to make it off like they were being nice, but really it was like, watch what the fuck you say, you guys, because um, (laughs) if you guys say something wrong, there will be consequences. Lauren didn't want to deal with any consequences. So she says she didn't say anything to the cops. But other girls did. This is Sent Away, an investigative podcast from KUER, the Salt Lake Tribune, and APM Reports. I'm Jessica Miller. We've had a lot of disturbing episodes as we've chronicled the story of Integrity House. But this one is in a category of its own. It includes allegations of rape and a description of an attempted suicide. We understand that you might not want to hear them, and you certainly won't want to listen if there are children nearby. But the story is also really important, and that's why we're telling it now. This is episode four, The Police Are Here. If you haven't heard our first three episodes, you should hit pause and start with those. The story behind why the police knocked on the door of Integrity House that day in 2013, it starts almost 500 miles away. 
in a little town in the Rocky Mountains. Our reporter, Curtis Gilbert, made the journey there last summer. Lori Guerrero has spent most of her life in Avon, Colorado, raised her family here. It's a picturesque spot just down the road from Vail. It's a resort town, so people come here to play and spend their money, but those who live here work a lot. When Lori isn't selling appliances at the Home Depot, she's at her second job, cleaning houses. Her own home is an immaculately kept double-wide. Everything here is just so, from the wind chimes on the porch to the colors she chose when she and her husband Flavio recently remodeled. Now it's creams and blues and grays. You know, it's, it's more open. And she's just as meticulous about her paperwork. She pulls out a fat, black, three-ring binder that she hasn't opened in almost a decade. A long time ago, I knew where all the information in here was. And then I just closed the book, and I didn't look at it anymore. Invoices, receipts, letters, medical records. Whatever was printable, I printed. You never know when you'll need the information. But that whole binder is Patricia. This whole binder is Patricia. Wow. Patricia is Lori's youngest daughter. And for most of her childhood, she was a pretty easy kid. She was smart. I mean, she had got great grades in school. Everybody loved to have her in class. Everybody loved to have her visit their home. She was so happy and quiet. And and she's just not a troublemaker. She was just a, a good little girl. And at what age did she start to sort of exhibit signs that she was experiencing depression? Sixteen. It got so bad, Patricia tried to run away from home. She spent time in a psych ward. And when she got out, the week before Christmas, her depression was worse than ever. And we got home and they told me, hide all your sharps. Okay, that was new to me. No closed doors. She went to the, to the bathroom and closed the door, and I talked to her, and I told her, you know, you can't close the door. And a little bit later, she still hadn't come out. And so I, I thought, oh, my God, she's just going to be, she's going to hate me, but I have to open this door. And there she was. And I was holding her up. And I knocked on the window in the bathroom because my husband was shuffling snow. And he came in right away because I knocked really hard. And we put her right here on the floor. And she wasn't breathing. And so I started CPR and Flavia tried to call 911. But he's not good at that. So he just starts screaming into the phone, my daughter's dead. She hung herself. And so I got the phone from him and I gave the address and I put the phone down just right here and I just kept working on her. And by the time they got here, she had taken a big breath and she had started breathing again. They took Patricia to the ICU and she survived 
But Lori was terrified it would happen again. Her home didn't feel safe anymore. So I didn't know what to do. I was at work, I was at Home Depot, and they just let me kind of take over the office and make calls. And I was on the internet just looking for girls' homes or therapy or... I didn't even know how to word it. And I found a few of them. And Integrity House, they were so caring on the phone. They were the ones who were like, let us do this for you. You just answered the questions. And so we just, we went with it. Lori took out a loan for $8,500. It was enough to cover a couple months' tuition at Integrity House. You feel like you're doing something good for your child. You feel like you're finally safe. You feel like she'll finally be safe. It was an emergency. Lori never even got a chance to see the place before she sent her daughter there. She just had to trust them. Lori would get reports from Integrity House, recapping Patricia's week. Most of the time, they'd say things like, Patricia appeared to have a good day. And it would list a daily high point, never a low point. And so we're thinking, it's okay, except that that's just what I'm reading. What I'm seeing when I call is just her sitting there crying. The only time she'd get to talk to Patricia was during family therapy sessions. They held them over Skype. She would start a sentence and then she just couldn't and she would just drop her head and cry. And they would tell me, it's okay. This is what they do. Be strong, mom, be strong. She's trying to manipulate you. In Lori's binder, there's an email she received from Integrity House. It appears to be a follow-up after one of those tearful Skype sessions. The email says lots of girls have a hard time when they first get to Integrity House. And then there's this line. I tell the girls that all programs have their problems, but what they need to understand is that the problem is them. Does this look like something that you probably wrote? Probably. That's Tracy Davis again. She was Patricia's mental health counselor at Integrity House. Tracy had just gotten her counseling license one year earlier. It's since been revoked for unprofessional conduct, not related to this. But that thing, the problem is you, that was something she took not from any formal psychological training, but from her own upbringing. I have six siblings, and I remember my mom looking at me. When everyone in the house is mad at you, you're the one with the problem. So figure it out. So for your parents to send you away to one of these places, you, you pretty much pissed off everybody around you. You're the one that acted out enough to get sent away. So, you know, figure it out. Because when I read that, I was like, well, that reads as kind of harsh, you know, like the problem is you. She had attempted suicide. Like, this isn't really misbehaving in the sense of being, like, a juvenile delinquent. This is, like, a depressed girl. Well, I think she was one of those, if I kind of remember right, she was the one that was 
She really wanted to be a victim. Probably with this, I probably was a little harsh because that's kind of my personality. <laughs> Just ask my daughter. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've learned a lot in the years. Probably wouldn't have write anything down so people can <laughs> find it and go, did you really tell her that? I'm like, yeah, that's what my mom told me. <laughs> yeah, I did. It's just, if everybody's bad at you, you're the one with the problem. Um, yeah, I was harsh. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The email closed by saying Patricia was in a safe place. Uh, wh- why are you talking to me? <laughs> I have no idea. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, just because I feel like for a really long time I let this go and I said, like, I just don't want to deal with any of it and I don't. Patricia Herrera still lives in Colorado, a couple towns over from her mom. She's married has two enormous dogs, works for the Little County Airport as an administrative assistant. When I asked if I could come talk to her about Integrity House, Patricia said she'd prefer to meet up in a public place. So we found a little room on the second floor of the local library. I mean, you were the first person to reach out about it and ask about this before nobody asked me what my story was or what had happened when I was there. And so after all these years, I assumed nobody cared and that it was just nothing was going to come of it. So I'm hoping to possibly make a difference for somebody else. Patricia wasn't at Integrity House for very long. She got there in early January 2013. And by late February, she already knew she needed to get out of there. One day, she saw an opportunity. We were deep cleaning the house. Integrity House was very big on cleaning, especially on Saturdays. If even a hair was left in the sink, the girls would have to write essays about it. And so I'm sitting here in this tiny little corner bathroom, cleaning the walls with bleach, and it just suffocating me, making my eyes burn. And like I feel sick to my stomach. And so we asked one of the staff members if we could open a window. So she had to put the code in to open the window then that was when we were like, duh. The staffer walked away. Patricia and another girl were suddenly alone together. And the window was right there. We were in the room and, and, and she said, like, I really don't want to be here. And I said, neither do I. And so I popped the screen out of the window. There weren't alarms on the screens. Ha-ha. <laughs> so... We jumped out the window and ran away. The girls had nothing on their feet but socks, and it didn't take long for the police to catch up with them. The other girl agreed to go back, but they had to wrestle Patricia to the ground. They put handcuffs on me and put me in the police car, and then they came and told me, like, we're going to take you back to Integrity House, and I kept telling them I can't go back there. You cannot make me go back there. And they didn't. They took her to juvenile detention for resisting arrest. And I actually was like, thank you. That's fine. Patricia never went back to Integrity House. Her mom found her another treatment program in Utah, 
one Patricia liked way better. She had been gone from Integrity House for three months when, according to public records, she told authorities something she alleged happened to her there. She alleged that Daniel Taylor, the man who founded Integrity House, had raped her three times. Uh, and wh- after, like, those words came out of your mouth, were you like, holy shit, now? Yeah, I thought, oh, shit, because I did, honestly did not want to deal with any of this. Yeah. Like, I just wanted to be done. I wanted to move on with my life. Her allegations would be a pivotal moment in the story of Integrity House, and they would change the course of many people's lives. But not in the way you might expect. More on that in a moment. Police in Cedar City arrested two staff members of a residential treatment facility after allegations of sexual assault at Integrity House surfaced in late May. The cops arrested Daniel Taylor, along with one of his employees, who allegedly used excessive force at Integrity House. Daniel denied all the allegations. He told us he doesn't even know if he ever met Patricia. At that time, in 2013, he says he'd stepped away from day-to-day operations. He still worked for the company, but his brother Hiram had taken over as program director. Still, Daniel says he was afraid of what might happen to him. I knew that I didn't do it, and so therefore I didn't see a whole lot coming out of it, but just the thought of it, the allegations, the um, what could happen. You always, in a situation like that, you always think of the worst. And I thought of the worst. And Daniel wasn't just facing accusations from Patricia. When police raided Integrity House, they heard allegations from other girls. One of them will call Sarah. All of a sudden, these people were coming, and they're asking questions to all the girls. I felt like I had nothing to do with it. Sarah isn't her real name. She asked us not to use it because she doesn't want people knowing about her time in treatment. Sarah spent most of her childhood in the California foster care system. Her mom died when she was two, and her adopted parents sent her to Integrity House when she was only 12. She'd been there five months when the police arrived. And then they pull me up, and they're like, oh, we're getting reports that um, you are being, like, abused and or, like, touched by some of the staff here. And I was like, well, who said that? Because probably with other girls, but I'm not going through that. But I wouldn't doubt if another girl was, maybe you have the wrong person. After the initial round of questions, Sarah says the cops took some of the girls off-site to be interviewed again. I was like, why am I here? And they're like, well, there's reports that... So-and-so did this to you, and I was like, oh, well. And then I just kind of ran with it, you know? Like, we went on, like, a trip to... We would do, like, little bonfires in the mountains. And I claimed that something happened on that field trip. I think I just said that he, like, 
oh yeah, he just checked me out and touched me a little bit on the field trip. Daniel was charged with sex crimes against Sarah, Patricia, and one other girl we weren't able to identify. That resident claimed Daniel had sexually assaulted her in a car while he was taking her to Integrity House, one of those transports we talked about in episode two. But about a year later, the case started to fall apart. One big reason, Sarah admitted she'd made her story up. I told my therapist, I told my family, I said that I, some of the things I said were not true or a little fabricated. Just to help the other girls kind of like solidify their situation a little more, they wanted to get out of there. And I was like, whatever, like if you're gonna get out of here, I might as well just like, I don't know, help you. But I was 12, like I was very immature, not thinking about how my actions could affect other people. Like I, it was a very big mistake. And I, I think about it all the time, how much I regret that because it, that could have really ruined somebody's life. And when Sarah recanted, it also cast doubt on Patricia's allegations because Sarah had been Patricia's roommate at Integrity House. And Patricia had told authorities that Sarah was there when Daniel allegedly raped her. Sarah says that never happened. Never in my life did I see anything like that happen. You know, nothing, nothing. There was nothing. I didn't witness anything at all. He never came into your bedroom that you recall? No, no, I like, I like, I'm not like, and if he did, it, you know, there was like staff there and other peers, like it was never by myself or unannounced or at a, a weird late time. And, you know, at least with me personally. It was a serious blow to the state's case, and it wasn't the only one. Months after they arrested Daniel, authorities learned another fact that cast doubt on the charges. Daniel Taylor is blind. Scott Burns is an attorney. He recently represented Daniel in a lawsuit related to all of this. Daniel Taylor not only could not have picked up a girl in Sacramento, uh, a patient, and driven her to Cedar City and sexually assaulted her on the way, Daniel Taylor couldn't have gotten out of the parking lot. Uh, He can't see four inches in front of his face. Burns is referring to the allegations of the third accuser, the one we weren't able to find, who claimed Daniel sexually assaulted her in a car while taking her to Integrity House. Daniel told us he didn't remember the girl's name, but he said he did remember the transport, and there were two other staffers there with him. He never did transports alone, because he can't see well enough to drive. Daniel says his vision problems stem from a brain tumor he had removed back in 1991. The surgery permanently damaged his optic nerve and left him legally blind. My eyesight's at 2,400. It is so hard to explain what a visually impaired person sees. I can't recognize you. I can see the difference in um, you're wearing a white shirt because you're on the couch. But your pants kind of blend in, and I just hear your voice, and so that's why I'm looking at you. Now, when did you stop driving? When I was probably, I lost my eyesight at 21. But we know that Daniel drove a car at least once after that, 
We went through all the records we could find on him at the local courthouse, and there was a traffic ticket in there. Daniel was behind the wheel, and it was five years after his surgery. I tried once. How'd that go? Didn't go. You got in an accident. Yeah, yeah, very quick. He blew through a stop sign and collided with a truck. An officer cited him for driving on a suspended license. Why did you think you could do that? I don't know. It was it was very dumb. It was a one-time thing? You, you yeah, weren't yeah. driving regularly to get to work? or how did you get No, 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 okay. no. There's no way possible. Uh-huh. No way possible. But. So you have not driven since then? No. And then there's this. The first time we met Daniel, David Fox and I were driving on that steep gravel road. Climbing up the side of Cedar Mountain. The destination is on your left. We pulled up to his house. Uh, Somebody's up front. And we saw a guy in the yard in a patch of snow operating a four-wheeler. Wait, wait. Stan driving the coin. As we walked up, our shoes crunching through the snow. Hey there. Hey, what's up? Hi, my, my name's Curtis Gilbert. Daniel cut the engine. And he told us his daughter had just gotten the thing stuck in the snow. Right where you're standing is where she was stuck at. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> he said he was just trying to get it unstuck. There's no doubt that Daniel's vision is extremely impaired. The font on his phone is enormous, and he holds it right up to his face when he reads it. it seems highly unlikely that he could drive any significant distance. But it's also clear that he's very adept at managing his disability. Many former residents and staff told us they had no idea about his vision problems. And the lead detective who worked on Daniel's case later testified that he didn't either, until pretty late in his investigation. And when the detective finally learned about it, he really started to doubt whether any of the allegations against Daniel were true. How do you learn that the charges against Daniel Taylor are dropped? I Googled it. (laughs) And it said that some of the, I don't know if it said multiple girls or one girl was untruthful. And then the other ones are mentally unfit. And my automatic assumption was that I was one of the mentally unfit people. And that's why nothing ever came of it. It was about 10 months after Daniel's arrest when the county prosecutor in Utah dismissed the case. Patricia had recently attempted suicide again, and she'd just been released from the hospital. So she was in no position to testify. You had Sarah saying she'd made her story up. You had Patricia saying Sarah was a witness. And you had Daniel's eyesight casting doubt on the other allegations. It's easy to see why the case got dismissed, and it's since been expunged from Daniel's record. He says he's tried to move on. How do I say this? Trying to keep religion out of it. It's not my responsibility to hold the grudge. I mean, it's it's better that 
I forgive, then I harbor it and boil it and continue to let it beat at me all the time and tear me apart. Patricia's feelings about the whole thing are complicated. But looking back, she says she's disappointed that her case didn't go forward. I'm willing to tell my truth. I'm not going to put words in other people's mouths. I'm going to talk about my experience and what like, I went through and why I did the things I did. Because that's what led me to fix my life. I mean, I'm not saying that it was worthwhile, because it wasn't. But eventually, I just decided to fix my life. Hi, my name's Larry Dutmer, college counselor at the Vail Valley at Edwards campus. And it is my honor to read the names of graduates from our campus for this academic year. With a Bachelor of Applied Science degree in Leadership and Management, Randall Cohen, Ashley Dwight, Alma Garola, Patricia Herrera, and Samantha Klein. With a Bachelor of Arts degree in Elementary... In 2020, seven years after she left Integrity House, Patricia became the first person in her family to graduate college. The pandemic had just begun, and so the ceremony was a virtual one. And the school chose Patricia as the class speaker. She didn't go into all the details, but she used the platform to talk about her experience with depression. I hope that my story will reduce the stigma of battling mental health issues and inspire others to overcome adversity. At one point in my life, I would have never told my story out loud. Life is long and it is hard, but it is beautiful and it is worth every moment of hardship. And I'm looking forward to what life brings me next. I'm very proud of where Patricia is now and what she's done with her life. For being hurt and depressed and in a bad place and then to be just shoved down even more and for her to come back all this way and be where she's at now is incredible. There's other parents right now whose daughters are attempting suicide, whose daughters are depressed and defiant and running away and all of this stuff. What advice would you give? Like, what have you learned? I've learned that the more I learn, the less I know. I know less now than ever before. I don't know what to tell them. I don't know who can help them. Obviously, my decisions to take care of weren't the best ones. How can I give advice? Daniel Taylor went free, but that's not the end of the story. The police investigation that Patricia sparked with her allegations uncovered lots of other troubling stuff about Integrity House.
Girls living in Daniel Taylor's home, him asking for massages, rough restraints. One employee even told the cops Daniel had restrained her once as some kind of weird test. He'd later admit that was true. The cops heard about all of it. And the government already knew a resident had died on a field trip years earlier. It had also received complaints from staff about the way the place was run. We don't know how much information the police shared with the state, but we do know that Utah regulators allowed Integrity House to stay open. They didn't even try to shut it down. What happened instead? And I've already spoken to the police about all of this stuff, but I I end up blacking out completely and punching her in the head a few times. Well, you know, zip tying and putting them in a, a horse trough, this it's outside of normal protocols to be sure. It's just not, it's not good care. It's a really, it's a mistake. There's, it's just a mistake by staff that we corrected. You just have to wonder who's in charge of this operation and why are they still in charge of this operation? That's next time on Sent Away. If you or someone you know needs help, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to Sent Away in your favorite podcast app. That way, you won't miss a single episode, and it'd be great if you'd write us a review, too. There's more to our investigation of the teen treatment industry in Utah. You can find it on our website. It's sentaway.org. Sent Away is produced by APM Reports, KUER, and the Salt Lake Tribune. It's reported by Curtis Gilbert, Jessica Miller, and me. David Fox. Data reporting by Will Craft. Kate Cahan is our editor. She had help from Elaine Clark and Matt Cannon. Fact-checking by Betsy Tanner-Levine. Our web editor is Andy Cruz. Michael Elsesser is the managing producer. Scoring and production by Nancy Rosenbaum with sound mixing from Alex Simpson. Engineering by David Childs. Original music by Roddy Nickpour. We also had help from our great intern, Hannah Akramadine. Support for Sent Away was provided by Arnold Ventures, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the Hollyhock Foundation.